Welcome to a lecture by Professor Juan E. Mendes uh, on the fight against impunity for gross human rights violations in international law, evolutions, challenges, and successes. The following intervention was recorded in an international workshop organized by the International Commission of Jurists and the Human Rights Joint Platform on access to justice to fight impunity for gross violations of human rights in Turkey, past and present. First, I want to express my gratitude to the International Commission of Jurists and uh, the Human Rights Joint Platform for this opportunity to share with you some ideas, some, some experiences uh, uh, from Latin America with uh, transitional justice uh, in the hope that uh, it may uh, inspire and give uh, all of you in Turkey uh, arguments and tools to fight impunity. Um, and I'm also very pleased that I've been invited to share this uh, podium with my very good friends, Wilder Tyler and Luciano Hassan. It's a real privilege to, to share uh, this uh, thoughts with, with you. Um, transitional justice uh, alludes to different uh, things, uh, but primarily uh, two. Uh, one, uh, the measures adopted by societies in transition from dictatorship to democracy or from uh, armed conflict to peace uh, in the context of uh, 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 the need to deal with legacies of very serious human rights violations uh, and uh, with the uh, obstacles uh, uh, created by the transition or that exist in the transition uh, to do justice to all the, 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 uh, the, the victims. But it also uh, alludes nowadays to um, a series of uh, norms. Uh, we used to call them emerging norms, but I think they're very well settled by now. Uh, and Massimo just alluded to them. Uh, they are a, 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 a complex of uh, norms in uh, international human rights law that uh, establish standards that states must uh, apply uh, in moments of transition uh, in order uh, to make sure that egregious and very serious and massive uh, atrocities uh, do not go uh, unpunished. Uh, in that sense, uh, these international standards, uh, they, uh, they are really well, uh, they, are, they are derived from well-established uh, obligations of the states under international human rights law. Uh, for example, with regards to the prohibition of torture, uh, and the pro prohibition of extrajudicial killings. But also uh, we must remember that these established norms are the product of social and political struggles that have happened in, in, different, in different historical moments and in different uh, countries. Uh, so uh, in turn, those struggles that are ongoing, they are always uh, present, uh, uh, get inspiration uh, from the, uh, the, the, the international norms that we're going to uh, discuss today uh, and, uh, and provide sometimes very powerful arguments 
for um, practitioners, for uh, non-governmental organizations, for victims and those seeking justice, their, their lawyers, for example, they draw very good arguments from international law uh, for uh, 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 overcoming obstacles to uh, truth uh, and justice in uh, their, their specific moments of history. Um, as you know, transitional justice basically uh, uh, refers to four separate but very related obligations of, of each state. One is to the truth, uh, that is to uh, uh, uncover and disclose the truth, not only to victims, but to the society at large about what happened, why it happened, uh, whose responsibility it was, etc. The second is to justice. And by, by justice, we mean primarily uh, investigating, investigating uh, prosecuting and punishing perpetrators of human rights abuses uh, and those who perpetrate them indirectly through the work of others. We, we, we mean uh, justice in the sense uh, of, of criminal prosecutions primarily, but that, uh, all, all crimes uh, is impossible to be able to prosecute. So transitional justice uh, also offers some uh, ways of, of uh, dealing at least with those uh, most responsible for human rights violations and make sure that uh, they, uh, they, they, uh, they don't escape justice. The third is reparations. Uh, reparations for the victims, uh, and they, they may take different forms, uh, but essentially the principle is that victims are entitled to both moral and monetary reparations from the state uh, that will never really return the situation to the status quo ante, but at least provide a measure of recognition of the plight of victims. And the fourth uh, obligation is ab about measures of non-repetition. That is institutional reform that makes it impossible in the future for uh, 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 individuals to abuse their power in the institutions of the state and those institutions becoming the vehicle for mass atrocities. So historically, the legacies of disappearances played a very large role in the development of these international norms because at the moment of transition, disappearances uh, leave an open wound in the fabric of society that is very difficult to heal while mothers and wives and husbands and children don't know the fate and whereabouts of the person who has disappeared. And so it was the impulse to uh, restore some level of peace uh, and justice for uh, disappearances that drove the uh, you know, remarkable struggles of civil society and in turn, the development of international norms uh, that I'm talking about. And the other driving force was that Almost by definition, uh, at the moment of transition, uh, these countries uh, faced also a very large level of impunity for disappearances, but also for other violations like torture, for arbitrary, uh, prolonged and arbitrary detention, for uh, unfair trials, uh, for, and for many, many extrajudicial killings. And so the impunity had different uh, forms. There was de facto impunity just because you know, prosecutors and judges turned uh, away and did not even bother to investigate uh, these crimes, 
or uh, de jure uh, impunity, mostly in the form of amnesty laws. Uh, uh, amnesty laws that the, uh, that the dictatorships passed for themselves, uh, we used to call them self-amnesty laws, but also amnesty laws that were written into uh, the, the, the statutes uh, at the moment of transition by a genuinely democratic government, but uh, under pressure uh, and almost as a condition for the transition to democracy. Um, and some of, uh, some of those laws we call pseudo amnesty laws because like in Argentina and Uruguay, they don't have the word amnesty anywhere uh, in, the, in the statute, but they, have, they operate as amnesty laws anyway. But there were also other de jure forms of uh, impunity, like uh, uh, very short statutes of limitation, for example, or um, uh, you know judicial uh, decisions to uh, uh, not to not to prosecute, or prosecutorial decisions also not to not to investigate and prosecute. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, it was. This, uh, uh, the, the need to contest these amnesty laws fun fundamentally, what drove the uh, inter-American system of protection mostly towards uh, uh, analyzing the obligations of the state and determining that uh, those uh, both de facto and de jure uh, forms of impunity were inconsistent and contrary to the obligations of the state. So yes, uh, international human rights law standards evolved uh, in, in, in great measure and to a, to a very large and detailed extent in the Inter-American System of Protection, which consists of a commission and a court uh, under the umbrella of the Organization of American States. But I wanna stress before I go any further that um, this is not inter-American law only. It is uh, international law universally uh, applicable. Um, and uh, for example, the European Court on Human Rights has had many decisions upholding uh, prosecutions for crimes of the Stalinist era or for the Nazi era. And the arguments are, that, that are made are the same. It is uh, consistent with the European Convention on Human Rights to eliminate statutes of limitation uh, that, uh, that would have been the obstacle to uh, prosecute uh, crimes uh, of 50 years ago. Uh, in the same vein, the European Court has made it very clear that the prosecutors and the judges have an affirmative obligation to investigate uh, cases of torture and of disappearance if uh, there's initial indicia that there, that, uh, uh, those crimes have happened uh, and without regard to whether the victim uh, or uh, his or her family has made uh, a complaint. The trajectory is a little different because in the case of uh, Europe, the European court has validated actions by <clears throat> each state to remove obstacles to impunity. Whereas in the inter-American system, the inter-American court and commission, both of them have very actively said, you states have to remove this obstacle. They have created an obligation on the part of states. A very short already during dictatorships, the inter-American commission on human rights already in the 70s, uh, very publicly criticized the self-amnesty laws uh, that dictatorships pass for themselves. 
but in, in reports 28 and 29 of 1992 uh, related to Argentina and to Uruguay, the commission for the first time actually said in a case uh, 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 Argentina and Uruguay could not rely on their pseudo amnesty laws uh, to uh, impede the march towards justice by the victims of atrocities of the dictatorship uh, era. Um, and then the commission has uh, uh, maintained very consistently the, this principle in many different cases, including, for example, the murder of Archbishop Romero in El Salvador. It has been the court, that, uh, the Inter-American court, that has made the most consistent and developed argument for why uh, international human rights law requires this kind of uh, uh, decisions uh, in the domestic uh, jurisdiction. And the first uh, uh, seminal case is Velazquez versus Honduras, a 1988 decision uh, dealing with disappearances in Honduras, uh, in, Honduras uh, in which the court described disappearances in detail um, and uh, established uh, in no uncertain terms that disappearance humanity. And therefore, that the state has obligations to truth, to justice, and to reparations uh, for uh, disappearances. And uh, there was no uh, issue of amnesty laws in Honduras at the time, but uh, very significantly with regards to truth, the, the Inter-American court said that that obligation to uh, uh, reveal and to disclose the truth about disappearances was present for as long as there was any doubt about the fate and whereabouts of uh, the person who was disappeared. And therefore, uh, no statute of limitations could be applied to the investigation of disappearances. Uh, more recently, in, in the year 2001, uh, in a case called Barrios Altos versus Peru, the uh, Inter-American Court ratified its uh, now by then pretty long-standing uh, doctrine about the obligation to investigate, prosecute, and punish, and uh, the uh, and uh, and of the uh, invalidity of amnesty laws, and said not only that the amnesty laws passed by the Fujimori dictatorship in Peru were uh, invalid under international law, but that the domestic jurisdiction had an obligation to deny those amnesty laws any effect, any. Uh, in, in any application in the domestic jurisdiction as well. Uh, and this was significant because by then Fujimori was no longer the dictator and the case of Barrios Altos was reinstated, reopened, uh, people actually rearrested uh, so that they could be uh, tried and uh, essentially, uh, eventually Fujimori himself was convicted by the Supreme Court of uh, Peru for uh, the crime of Barrios Altos, a massacre of civilians in a neighborhood of uh, Lima. But then came uh, Almonacida Rellano versus Chile in uh, 2007. Uh, this was a case of early on in the Pinochet dictatorship of a union leader and teacher who was murdered uh, very early on in the dictatorship. And the case had made some rounds within Chile, but had uh, faced an obstacle uh, in the in that uh, the jurisdiction of military courts was applied and they had, uh, uh, of course, uh, not prosecuted anybody for it. 
And in Almonacida de Llano, the court went farther and said not only that Chile was obligated to remove those statutes from the book, even though the Supreme Court of Chile by then was uh, not applying uh, the self-amnesty law, the, the, because uh, self-amnesty law remained at the time in the law books, uh, in, in, in the law of, of Chile, Chile was obliged to remove it because uh, lower courts could not apply, uh, apply it either. And uh, not only that, that self-amnesty law, uh, the court said that uh, Chile was uh, obliged to remove all obstacles to justice, uh, including presidential pardons, for example, or uh, statutes of limitations, or uh, any other form uh, of an obstacle, legal or de, de facto, that uh, stands in the way of investigating, prosecuting, and punishing these kind of crimes. Then came other decisions, Helman versus Uruguay and, uh, and Gomez Lund versus Brazil, uh, in which the, the Inter-American Court uh, reaffirmed that Uruguay and Brazil had to uh, prosecute the crimes of their respective dictatorships. Unfortunately, the Supreme Courts of both countries uh, have uh, been reluctant to, uh, uh, to implement the Hellman and the Gomez Lund decisions. But it is, that doesn't mean that in Uruguay and, uh, and in Brazil, there's no uh, you know, uh, action towards justice. Some lower courts and some uh, cases have made their way and uh, you know uh, to to prosecuting at least some of these crimes um, what i want to stress is that in latin america in varying degrees and with different uh, forms uh, these uh, decisions by the inter-american court uh, regardless of the of uh, the decisions of the supreme courts of uruguay and brazil have had quite uh, a bit of uh, validity and implementation. Uh, courts in many countries, but uh, I would say especially Chile, Argentina, Colombia, and as I said, some courts also in uh, Uruguay and Brazil uh, have used the arguments of uh, uh, Almonacida de Llano and Barrios Altos for uh, uh, changing the course of impunity in the domestic jurisdictions. The, the, the domestic uh, struggle is, uh, as I said uh, earlier on, very, very much ongoing and there's always challenges and there's always the risk of uh, backtracking. But the, the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Commission and of the Inter-American Court have uh, proven to be a, a very powerful legal argument that human rights activists uh, domestically uh, but also courts and and and, and uh, progressive uh, prosecutors have applied to uh, to try to ensure that um, their legitimate aspirations to justice by victims uh, are respected in a democratic setting. Uh, my time is up, uh, and uh, I'm eager to hear Wilder and Luciano. So thank you very much. intervention listened to is part of the REACT project that has been coordinated by the International Commission of Jurists and the Human Rights Joint Platform. The project is funded under the 
European instrument of democracy and human rights of the European Union. The views and opinions reflected in this audio file are not the opinion or views of the European Commission or of its delegation to Turkey. We hope you have enjoyed the lecture and uh, we wish you a pleasant day.